Welcome to the AOCPP podcast, the weekly podcast brought to you by the Association of Child Protection Professionals, where we, alongside guests, share with you the latest in child protection news. Every week, we invite child protection professionals with expertise in either research or practice to give us their perspectives on the weekly news stories related to safeguarding and child protection. There's never been a more important time to keep up with safeguarding and child protection news. But with government regulation changing daily, we realise not all frontline professionals have the time to do so. That's why we've created this podcast, to give you what you need to stay informed. Today, we have a special episode for you. In these special episodes, we take a more focused look at a singular issue that child protection professionals need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we'll be talking with a professional at the forefront of the issue. But first, let's hear a few words from the AOCPP team. Hello, I'm Vicky Hill from the AOCPP team, and I'm here to tell you about our current free membership trial. We're offering a free membership trial until the 31st of August this year. We realise that the next few months will continue to put pressure on child protection professionals, particularly those working on the front line. And that's why we're opening our resources to as many of you as possible. Those who sign up for membership will receive online access to our highly respected journal, Child Abuse Review. You get discounted entry to our future events, workshops and conferences and access to our special virtual webinar this August on abusive head trauma so much more on offer as well. So sign up for your free membership now and go to childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk to join. Thanks very much. Hello everybody, I'm Steve Myers. I'm a trustee of the Association of Child Protection Professionals. I'm your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Emma Katz about coercive control and domestic abuse. Dr. Katz is a leading research specialist in the harms caused by perpetrators to mothers and children in the context of domestic abuse and coercive control. She's a senior lecturer in childhood and youth at Liverpool Hope University and has won multiple awards for her research, including the Corinna Saith Prize awarded by Women Against Violence Europe in 2016. Emma has also written for our academic journal, The Child Abuse Review. Her most recent article, When Coercive Control Continues to Harm Children, is now available to read and download, as is her 2016 article, Beyond the Physical Incident Model, which is one of our journal's most viewed articles to date. Alongside these, Emma is releasing a book entitled Coercive Control in Children and Mothers' Lives, which will be published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. So, Emma, thank you for talking to us today. We're living in a, in a strange world at the moment of COVID lockdown. Issues around domestic abuse, domestic violence have been quite pointed, really. And I just wondered what, given your, your expertise, your experience, your research, you know, what, what your thoughts are at the moment around those issues around coercive control, domestic abuse and the, the lockdown and restrictions. Well, coercive control perpetrators, the clues in the name, they're all about control. They want to control the people in their household, and that might be their intimate partner, or it might be their children, or other people in the household, you know, possibly even their parents or their adult grown-up children. But the clue is in the name, it's, it's all about control for them. With the pandemic, their usual freedoms and liberties as adults have been somewhat reduced because now there's all there's many rules and regulations which are restricting their activities. So I think that in order to keep up their usual feeling of control, they'll be redoubling their efforts to control within the household to give them that sense of power and control. 
It's also particularly difficult for survivors, adults and child survivors, because a lot of their usual mechanisms for coping with the perpetrator, such as perhaps getting out the house for some period of time, for the children perhaps going to school, for the adult survivor possibly going to work or going somewhere away from the perpetrator, those have obviously been stopped in many cases. Or indeed, sometimes the respite comes when the perpetrator is out the house because they've gone to work and then the survivors are in the house but are having a bit of respite from it. So everyone's been forced to spend a great deal of time together with very little way of getting away from each other. It will certainly have amplified the horrors of the abuse a great deal. When the lockdown is lifted, there's going to definitely be a lot of people in need of a serious amount of help and support. Survivors will be needing help and support and there'll be a great deal of need for perpetrator intervention as well because obviously domestic abuse doesn't happen spontaneously. It is caused by the perpetrator. It's not a home where abuse happens. It's a home where the perpetrator is creating the abuse. So it's the perpetrator that needs to be tackled if we're to get to the bottom of, of the abuse. Mm. That's a really helpful analysis, I think, and one that's actually very scary. We know that there are indications already that uh, there's a higher incidence around domestic abuse during lockdown. There's some sort of anecdotal and a little bit more evidence coming out. So once we emerge from this cocoon of regulation and lockdown, what do you think is an effective way of engaging with people so that survivors can let services know that it's happening? And also, what sort of services do you think would be helpful for, for perpetrators as well? Uh, well, let me start with the perpetrators. I think that it's really important for perpetrators to have interventions that are really fit for purpose. And what is really needed is specialist perpetrator programs that have been RESPECT accredited. So RESPECT is an organisation that accredits perpetrator programs and ensures that they meet a certain standard. Because if you work with perpetrators, but the programme itself isn't meeting that high quality standard, you can actually make things even worse. You can embolden the perpetrator, you can put the survivors in more danger. Perpetrators who've completed a program that hasn't really been effective will then say, look, I've changed. Why are you still complaining? What's the matter with you? But of course, they haven't changed and they're just using it as a sort of tick box and it's giving them yet more power. The right services for perpetrators are definitely respect accredited perpetrator programs. And I know that there's a shortage of them on the ground because they haven't been funded. And I know that there is a push to have more of them funded. I think we all need to call on the government to have a proper perpetrator strategy with proper funding behind it as much as we can. And it's very difficult until that's in place. Things that are not helpful for perpetrators anger management doesn't help because the problem isn't anger for a coercive control perpetrator. The problem is their attitudes, their belief systems and their over entitlement. So they believe they have a right to control the household and they believe they're justified in behaving in the ways that they're behaving. So anger management won't make any inroads into those beliefs because they believe that they have the right to be behaving that way. Similarly, anything along the lines of couples counselling or family counselling is extremely dangerous where there's domestic abuse, where one partner is trying to control the other or trying to control the whole household. Because again, the perpetrator isn't really interested in changing their behaviour. They think they're entitled to behave in that way. So you need an intervention that specifically targets what the perpetrator is thinking in order to, to change their thinking over time. Time. But I must just say that not all perpetrators are suitable for perpetrator programs. A good program will screen perpetrators at the start and decide whether they're a perpetrator who can be worked with. 
if they're not a perpetrator who can be worked with, then you're looking at legal interventions to prevent that perpetrator from carrying on their abuse. And, you know, you're looking of going down the criminal justice route, which may go alongside the perpetrator programme anyway. So in terms of reaching survivors post-lockdown, I think that it's important to just open up conversations with people in a non-threatening way to try and let them know that, that they're believed, you know, to the words, I believe you can be incredibly powerful. And also to remember that that survivor, whether it's an adult or a child, what the perpetrator has been doing to them systematically for a long time is disempowering them. So no intervention will work to help them that takes yet more power away from them. Mm. It's got to be about re-empowering the survivors. And part of that is about helping to get the perpetrator out of their life or get the abuse out of their life because they can't really start to thrive until they're no longer being abused. Mm. Um, so it's about working with them to find ways of getting them to a point where the perpetrator isn't abusing them anymore. But it has to be in a way where they feel empowered, they feel in control of their life, they feel that they're making the decisions with support mm. rather than somebody, however well-meaning, coming along and then making the decisions for them, which is exactly what the perpetrator did so so important to, to empower the survivor whether they are indeed an adult or a, or a child that's a really interesting point isn't it about um, empowering those who are disempowered structurally yeah. and i think sometimes in my background there's some evidence that our services can be disempowering as well in that process it's worth sort of thinking about that a little bit more perhaps about well what sort of services do you think would be appropriate to develop and deliver well, specialist domestic abuse services are often really fantastic community resources and the people who work within them are often very clued up about abuse and very skilled at working with abuse survivors in an empowering way. So it's definitely about working with those services as much as possible. Again, of course, they're underfunded and we need more of them and they need more workers. I think that strengths-based approaches are really good for empowering. So, you know, looking at how we can build on a person's strengths rather than picking apart their weaknesses, which I know we wouldn't intend to do, but sometimes we sort of fall into that way of thinking by accident. So say a survivor who's a mum to children, it's about asking them what kinds of things have they been doing to try and maintain their children's well-being? Because yeah. they'll have probably been trying to do so many things to make their children as okay as possible within the limits that the perpetrator has imposed on everybody. They'll be making calculated decisions all the time about to what extent they can maintain their children's well-being without causing a counter-reaction of abuse from the perpetrator. They'll be engaged in a constant battle to protect their children as much as they possibly can. And it won't necessarily be big things. It, it might be little things like, you know, playing with the child, spending some time with the child or trying to keep the child from upsetting the perpetrator, which is a heartbreaking thing to have to do. But that perpetrator is determined to, to lash out if certain things happen. And obviously the survivor can't control the perpetrator because there's, there's no way of doing that. The perpetrator will make that choice to abuse. Then just trying to manage the child's behavior to minimize that. That is a protective behavior, even though it's not ideal. So asking people, what have you been doing to try to survive? And asking people in what ways they've been trying to protect themselves as well, to make sense of their own thought processes. Because abuse survivors know more about survival than we could ever imagine. It's their lived experience day after day after day. So they know what it is that they've been doing to try and survive and to help their loved ones to be okay as well. 
so it's just about opening up those questions and asking them strengths-based questions. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Survivors are the resource for dealing and managing with, with that abuse in many ways. They'll yeah. know how much danger they're in as well. And sometimes yeah. when they report how much danger they're in, it's not necessarily taken seriously. You know, people can assess and say, actually, you're not in any danger. And they're saying, no, I really am. So it's, it's important to take their, their assessment very seriously. But ultimately, the perpetrator has created a no-win situation. If you comply with them, you lose your freedom, you lose your autonomy, your, your very sense of self is eroded. Mm. And if you don't comply with them, then they punish you. And that might be emotionally, financially, sexually, physically. So the perpetrator has created an absolute no-win situation. Survivors are navigating that and are trying to find the least worst options. But what we need to do is to get that perpetrator's abuse out of that survivor's life. Until that happens, it is a no-win situation. It's picking the best of many different bad options. Yeah. It's an interesting distinction, I think, between getting the perpetrator out of the life and getting the abuse out of the life. They're not necessarily the same. And I think it comes back to your, your earlier comments about the need for perpetrator programs. We need programs that challenge effectively and support effectively as well perpetrators. In my background, working with people who are sexually violent, making sure that people are challenged appropriately is important, but also providing that sort of recognition of people you need to change. Well, yes. And I think that, again, some perpetrators respond well to perpetrator programs and some don't. That needs to be recognised. The ones who are not engaging well are still an incredible threat and are still doing a lot of harm. But where perpetrators, they've really thoroughly engaged with a respect accredited perpetrator programme and it's clear that they have done a lot of good work on that programme, then it may be that the survivor might want to keep the perpetrator in their life, perhaps still as a partner, but perhaps just as a, as a co-parent or a friend. But of course, that has to be the survivor's choice, even if the perpetrator has gone through an incredible transformation and, and is now a very different person. If the survivor finds it triggering or upsetting in any way to have them in their life, then obviously they shouldn't be pressured to have them in their life. It's entirely the survivor's choice. And it's also their choice whether or not they want to, to forgive in any way. Forgiveness is a challenging concept. And for some people, they find it helpful to forgive people for the wrongs that they've done. And other people don't find that helpful at all. And again, there should never be any pressure to forgive anybody or to make peace with anything because that can be very unhelpful sometimes. Sometimes anger is helpful. Sometimes being outraged is the thing that is needed. Absolutely. Yeah. People have a right to anger when they're treated badly. Yes. Adults and children. Children Absolutely. have a right to be yeah. very angry with the perpetrator parent. Yeah, I mean, anger has a function, you know, absolutely. It can be a rational <laughs> process. So. Absolutely, yes. The survivors never signed up to be treated this way, you know. If it's an intimate relationship, at the start of the relationship, the perpetrator seemed like the most lovely romantic partner. They seemed caring and protective and attentive. If the survivor had ever known what it would become later on, they'd have never got into that situation. But the perpetrator very carefully sort of sucked them in and then entrapped them slowly over time. Similarly, children never asked to be parented by somebody with abusive behaviour. They were born into that situation. They couldn't help it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, people never made the choice to get into that situation. And, and they have every right to be very, very angry that that happened to them. I, I certainly yeah. think it's really helpful to, to be aware of that. Absolutely. And I think validating that's really important sometimes for people, survivors. It's interesting, Emma, we've talked about parents, couples, children. <laughs> I suppose one of the issues that I'm interested in generally but is around how gender plays out in these relationships and our understanding, if you like, our professional understanding of coercive control and domestic abuse. 
I've worked with a variety of different family styles in the past. So, for example, I've come across coercive control in same-sex relationships, for example. So I'm just thinking about the role of gender and from your research, your experience, how gender has impacted on, on your understanding of, of coercive control and domestic abuse. Absolutely. Well, my feeling about it is that we live in a society where one of the messages that we get, it's not the only message we get, but one of the messages that we get is be dominant, win at the expense of other people, accumulate power. And that's the sort of message that goes out fairly generally across society. But then you also have traditional stereotypical ideas about sex and gender which say men you're the ones who should be powerful you're the ones who should make the decisions in the relationship you know you're the one who should be the head of the household and women you should be fairly subservient you should be accommodating you should try to please other people you should be the peacekeeper you should be gentle you should be nurturing so you've got that general message of be dominant, win at the expense of other people, but then you've got that gender message, which gives very different messages to males and females. So I think in that situation, it's not surprising that most perpetrators of domestic abuse are males in relationships with females, because those are the messages that we've been getting. So for a male coercive control perpetrator, their behavior is a more extreme version of stereotypical husband-father behavior, a much more extreme version of that stereotypical, be the one with the ultimate say in the family, be the one who's most respected, be the one who's most deferred to. Coercive control perpetrators have just taken that a few stages further into a more extreme place. So it's relatively easy for them to do that because they're kind of swimming with the tide. They're behaving how men were told to behave, but they've just taken it to a much more extreme place. Now, if a woman were to try to dominate a male in a relationship, they're swimming against the tide. They're doing the exact opposite of what women have been traditionally told to do and to be. So it's much harder for them to get to that place where they can pull that off, which is why we see far fewer females, I think, behaving in that manner but remember that women are still living in a society which says dominate, win, win at the cost of others. And so a minority of women are listening to that message and, and implementing that in their personal life, even though it goes against traditional sort of gender norms. So I think that helps to explain it. We do see that although women can certainly be very badly behaved in intimate relationships, very few dominate their partners in a coercive control sort of way. So Andy Myhill of the Royal College of Policing has done some very interesting research on gender and coercive control. Well, he looked at people who'd experienced some form of domestic abuse and they'd reported it in a survey that something had happened between them and their partner. And he looked at the breakdown of that between males and females. There were two questions on the survey, and one was about, has your partner behaved in such a way that you were frightened of them, either personally or you were frightened for your loved ones? And there was another question about, has your partner put you down so much that you, you felt belittled, you felt small? Hmm. What Myhill found was that 30% of women who said they'd experienced some form of abuse answered yes to those questions. Their partner had made them frightened and belittled them to the extent that they felt small and worthless. So 30% of women with some form of domestic abuse experience said that. Only 6% of men said that. Very different. So 94% of men in that survey who'd experienced some form of abuse, it hadn't been to the extent that they'd been frightened and they'd been belittled to the point where they felt worthless. Mm. So 6% compared to 30%. 
Now, of course, the 6% of men who said they'd had that experience are, of course, just as important as the 30% of women who'd had that experience, but there are definitely fewer of them. But of course, they need just as much support and help as the women do. And yes, it can certainly happen in same-sex relationships as well, because again, you've got a same-sex couple, they both get the same sort of messages in general from society about how to be as a man or a woman. But one of them may have taken that message of control, win, dominate, dominate at the expense of others. They may have taken that to heart a great deal more than the other one who hasn't responded to that message at all. So you can certainly see it in same-sex relationships. And indeed, there can be added elements of abuse there because a perpetrator in a same-sex relationship can do things like threaten to out their partner as a sort of form of blackmail to get them to do as they're told. Or they can get friends within their LGBT community to turn on the survivor those communities can sometimes be very close-knit communities so the perpetrator can gain allies within that community and, and use that against the survivors so people in same-sex relationships can face some really particular difficulties when there's abuse that people in heterosexual relationships don't experience yeah no that's interesting isn't it how these things play out other different dynamics available and different, if you like, different social stories that people draw on to uh, to justify their, their behaviours in many ways. Their Absolutely, yeah. And, and I just want to add also that, of course, many men get the message about how to be a, a sort of man in society, you know, to be dominant, to be quite aggressive, to have the final say, but then they choose to totally ignore those messages. Some men don't buy into those messages and they perform a very different kind of masculinity. And similarly, some women reject the stereotypical message about how to be a woman and they perform their femininity and they live their lives in a way that doesn't take on board those messages and they rebel they resist the gender traditions so people are very variable there was a most interesting study called the man box in 2017 and it looked at a representative sample of young men in the uk and it found that 44 percent of young men in the uk said that they feel that society tells them that they should have the final say in relationships. They also said, 45% said that society tells them that they deserve to know where their girlfriend or wife is at all times. Yeah. And that was quite a startling finding. And let me just say again, these were young men, you know, so we're not talking about, you know, oh, this is sort of old fashioned ideas. These were men under 30 in the UK. And it was a representative example. The study's called The Man Box by Heliman et al. And it's from 2017. So those ideas are still quite strong in our society today. Absolutely. I think that sort of echoes my experiences of working with people who commit sexual violences, which where their attitudes and values can appear really problematic. And they mm. are. But actually, once you look at them in the context of studies that you've just described, they're not significantly different from a chunk of the general population. So that the role of attitudes and values is, is something we need to think about. Because if we've got 45% of young men feeling that sense of gendered entitlement, that's really worrying, you know, seriously concerning and requires yes. more of perhaps a, a less individualised and perhaps more for want of a better term, public health approach to reducing sexual violence and domestic abuse. Well, absolutely. And, and this is something that we need to be having conversations with our young people about at a much earlier age. Oh, I heard an anecdote a little while ago about what do you do to help a 35-year-old perpetrator? You talk to them when they were 12. <laughs> I thought that was very telling because by the time they've got to that point where their behaviour is embedded and they've already done a lot of harm, 
there are things that can be done but in some ways it is too late certainly the harm that they've done can never be reversed even if they do change later on in life so by having those conversations early and, and investing more in prevention we would significantly reduce domestic abuse the government's own figures from last year released through the home office calculated that domestic abuse cost this country 66 billion pounds a year and that wasn't even including the impacts on the children who have a perpetrator within their family. That was just the costs in relation to the harm done to the adult victim. Mm. So if you added in the children as well, I can't even imagine how much higher that figure would go because obviously there's quite often multiple children in the same family. So you're just multiplying the costs. You know, imagine the money that could be saved if we even stopped a portion of perpetrators through preventative work early on, engaging with our young young boys and our young girls and talking about these issues and getting them the help and support they needed so that they never started perpetrating. And there's a sort of, I think, a moral perspective here around what's the right thing to do around early intervention. And it is around, you know, preventing costs and so on. But actually, it's something around, well, what sort of society do we want? And how do we develop a society that eradicates violence as much as possible in all its forms? And I think you're absolutely right. Maybe 12 is too late. You know, maybe we need to be Mm. having those conversations at a, a much younger age about what's appropriate behavior, what's appropriate relationships, you know, what is healthy in that sense. But yeah, Absolutely, really... yes. So, Emma, you've had a, a recent article in Child Abuse Review, which is the Association of Child Protection Professionals journal, really. I mean, it's fantastic and well, well respected. Really interesting article around coercive control and a comparative study with Finland, which is it's always interesting to see how different societies do and understand events. You've also got a book coming out in 2021. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your, your research associated with the article. So I got together with researchers in the University of Lapland in Finland. I didn't know there was any such place until until I found these researchers. Um, but it's a wonderful university. They do some great stuff up there. It's actually the northernmost university in the whole of Europe. Wow. Uh, just a bit of trivia. Um, we looked at the experiences of, of 29 children, some in the UK and, and some in Finland, who had a coercive control perpetrating father or stepfather and what had happened when their mother had split up with the father and tried to get away, but the father had carried on stalking and harassing the mum and through the mum, the children also. These were children for whom stalking from their father or their stepfather was part of their everyday life. Indeed, it often dominated their everyday life. And they were trying to keep safe from it, but it was very difficult. Mm. And they, they were getting very, very little help, actually, from the authorities here in the UK or in Finland. And we looked at how these children experienced these men's fathering behaviours, because many of them were, they they either were still in in touch with the fathers in some way, or through the stalking, they they were experiencing this very violent, problematic fathering. So we, we asked the children about how they were experiencing the fathering of these men who were stalking them and their mothers. There were three themes that came out, and one was that sometimes they found the fathers to be incredibly dangerous, so that was their overriding feeling. They were aware that their fathers could turn up anywhere at any time to harass them or attack them. Their fathers frequently did this. They were scared. One boy described how my dad brought some other men around to the house and they were banging on the doors and I was frightened for my life and I hid. And another child described how dad used to lurk in their back garden. And one time when he was out there, he chopped down my tree 
which the child interpreted as a sort of act of spite from the father mm. to the child. The children were sometimes scared to leave their pets when they went to school because they didn't know if the pet would still be alive when they came back. You know, leaving sort of hamsters or guinea pigs or dogs in the house unprotected. They'd gone to school and the mum had gone to work. So a lot of it was living in great fear of the father. Some children described a kind of fathering from these men that was about the men putting on this show of being a really great father to the wider community and sometimes to the children themselves. You know, coercive control perpetrators are very manipulative. So you, you can pretty much guarantee that their behaviour will be very manipulative. And one way that that was occurring for the children is that dad would, would show up at the school and talk about what a great dad he was and make a big show of everyone seeing him greeting his children and, and loving them and, and being attentive towards them so that all the onlookers would think, oh, what a great dad. And it was very purposeful, like a show that he was putting on. Similarly, some of the children found that the way that dad was talking to them, he was trying to sort of set them on this guilt trip where he was making them feel responsible for his feelings. Two daughters described how they would go and see dad at the weekend and he would say, your mum makes me cry, your mum is making me so upset, I'm having to take antidepressants because of what your mum is doing to me. And then he would say things like, I'm so sad that you're not seeing me more often you're the only ones who really love me. And so he was presenting himself as a sort of helpless victim, although he was actually wielding enormous power over them through these statements because he was emotionally manipulating them into feeling that they had to stay in contact with him for the sake of his well-being. They would come back home after these visits, which were court-ordered here in the UK, and they were distraught. And, you know, they were about maybe eight or nine or ten at the time, these two girls, and... One of them would be off school every Monday because she felt so awful and she'd just be distraught and she'd be on the sofa crying her eyes out and the mum was hugging her and trying to comfort her. But there was nothing much that the child or the mum could really do about it because it was court ordered. Mm -hmm. Now, eventually, one of the daughters did make the decision to stop seeing dad. And a pivotal moment for her had been when she'd seen a counsellor who'd actually managed to help her to understand that dad was being very emotionally manipulative and that she didn't have to sort of put up with that behaviour. So a counsellor had helped her to see what was going on. Whoever that counsellor was, I would I'd love to shake their hand because they did a lot of good she was able to stop seeing him. Now, he could have, of course, taken the mother back to court and, and probably forced the daughter to carry on seeing him. But by that point, he'd found a new victim. He was in a new relationship and he'd fathered a new child. So I suspect he was busy focused on controlling them. And so this daughter, who was now 9, 10, 11, managed to, to get away. But I'm sure he could have insisted that she carried on if he'd have had a mind to, which is disturbing. And then the third theme was that some children felt that even though their dad wasn't there, they were constantly scared of him. They, they felt they couldn't move freely in their community because, with good reason, they were scared that he might appear at any moment to kidnap them. You know, he'd, in some cases, he'd done that before. So they may not have seen him for months or even years, but they were still terrified to move freely around their community because they knew he was out there. And they knew that if something happened, they may never have even been given back to their mother. She may never have been able to get them back. So they were terrified. They described how they were constantly checked that the doors and the windows were locked at night to try and give themselves some sense of security. Some of them were sleeping in their mother's beds because they were scared at night and, again, tried to feel better that way. And, you know, these were sort of 12, 13-year-olds who you wouldn't expect to be in their mother's beds, but they were scared. 
so one thing that we, we really took from that was that it doesn't matter how long ago the last incident was for the children the threat is ever present and you know they know that that perpetrator is still out there mm. so their needs seem to be completely unaddressed and nobody seemed to be helping them and it was having a big impact on their mental health on their education uh you know on their ability to to be part of their communities to make friends it was having such negative impacts on them so there was so much more that needed to be done to support these children and their needs were very much unaddressed and of course their mothers were heartbroken that this was happening to the children and were doing the best that they could but of course they were survivors and victims as well and they were under similar threat from the perpetrator too mm -hmm. um no it's, it's just absolutely um it harrowing to hear some of those stories uh, you know the real pain that's been inflicted i'm just wondering i mean those families were child services involved in them at the same time? So were services not listening, not recognising what was happening in those families? In some cases, some services were involved, and, and in other cases, they weren't. I think that it was more a question of the perpetrator having this ongoing freedom to be able to appear at any time or, you know, the family courts allowing them to, to see the children every weekend. So mm -hmm. until the perpetrator was stopped, there was not much that could be done to help the survivors because the abuse is ongoing. So until the perpetrator was stopped, they were kind of stuck. And also, I think they probably needed a great deal of therapeutic support that nobody had realised that they needed or had the funding to offer them. It's very, very difficult, certainly in this country, to get mental health support for children and the thresholds are so high to get seen by, by child and adolescent mental health services at the moment. So yeah, there was a lot of unmet need. In some cases, social services were aware, but of course, this is post-separation and there's often the misconception that once the relationship has ended, the children will be safe. But the problem is that the cause of the abuse isn't the relationship, it's the perpetrator. And the perpetrator most likely have very, you know, have no intention of stopping their abuse just because their partner has said they want to separate. Indeed, separation is the most dangerous time because the perpetrator has lost control over these people who they've been so invested in controlling and they'll double down their efforts to get that control back. The stalking and the, the ongoing emotional manipulation and all of that is the perpetrator trying to maintain that control, even though they're no longer in a relationship with, with the adult survivor. So, yeah, I think more needs to be done to address the fact that adult and child survivors are, are usually not safe post-separation because the perpetrators are not being stopped. Sometimes they are stopped and sometimes there are effective ways of stopping them, such as imprisoning them or sometimes a, something like a non-molestation order can work, but a lot of perpetrators seem to violate them with total impunity. Something that came through very strongly in, in my research was how few perpetrators had faced any consequences for their actions. Of the 15 children in the UK, only one perpetrator was in prison at the time that I interviewed the families. And that perpetrator had used weapons against police officers when they'd responded to an incident. And that's why he was in prison. But the others who'd harmed their partners and children night after night for years were not in prison. No. No, that's, that's just that's a really telling analysis, isn't it, really? I just wonder, Emma, in terms of, you know, the audience for the AOCPP is, is sort of child protection professionals. So, mm. so any sort of key messages, because this has been fascinating, this conversation, absolutely fascinating, but any key messages from your, your research and your expertise that you'd like to share with, with the audience? I would say it's really important to keep naming the problem as the perpetrator because the survivor parent who's usually the mum never asked to be in this situation has got completely entrapped by the perpetrator 
and the perpetrator is the one who is dominating and manipulating the situation, like a sort of puppet master pulling the strings. So the problem that needs to be tackled is the perpetrator, the survivor, what they need is to be supported to get their power back, all the power, all the autonomy that the perpetrator has taken away from them. And it's so difficult to do that when the perpetrator is still abusing. So it's the perpetrator who needs to be tackled. Yeah, so I think that would be my main message. We need to have much more robust spotlight on the perpetrator and what they're doing and definitely not assume that that the perpetrator will stop post-separation. We need to have plans that keep the children and the adult survivors safe and together as much as possible in the long term. We know that mums who've been through abuse are often their children's main source of coping. Studies have asked children, what's the main thing that helped you to cope while all of this was going on? You know, most of the time they'll say, it was my mum. Not all of them will say that, but most of the time they'll say, it was my mum. So the mums are an enormous source of coping for the children, even though the mums are going through so much themselves. Not in every case, and in some cases there are mums who would have had real parenting issues in any circumstance, even if their partner had been the most lovely person in the world. But in most cases, the mums are actually incredible parents who are trying their hardest in an impossible and nightmarish situation. So I think lots of empowerment for the survivor parent and for the children, and really rigorous spotlight on the perpetrator. They won't stop until someone stops them or something stops them. Right, that, that's good to hear, Emma. I think that perpetrator taking responsibility and seeing as being responsible is, is an absolutely important message to take away and actually removes the focus, which is on, on the women in the relationship. So that's fantastic to hear. And I'd really like to thank you for the, your, your contribution today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Based on really sort of interesting evidence, you know, your research is fascinating and some really strong, powerful stories there about people's lived experience. And everybody who's listened to this podcast will take away and hopefully think about and include in their, in their professional decision making as we, as we go forward. So I'd just like to, on behalf of the AOCPP, I'd like to thank you for the podcast. Thank you, Steve. And, and I'd also like to thank my, my co-authors from the University of Lapland, Professor Maria Leitinen and Dr. Anna Nikopaturi, who have been absolutely wonderful to work with and so kindly pooled their data with mine so we could compare the experiences of UK and Finnish children. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Emma. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes, email us at hello at AOCPP. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, including the free membership trial that we are running for the next few months, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.